as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under the guardians and manages until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Gracious God, merciful and loving Father, this morning, this morning above all mornings, Lord God, we, we praise you, we worship you, we thank you for your amazing goodness and grace and love and mercy that was preeminently displayed in the birth and life, and death of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that your love, that you chose to make your love and goodness visible to humanity through the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, and we praise you, Lord Jesus, our King, our God and our Savior, for stepping into our world, for breaking into time, space, and history, and taking on human form to fix for us what humanity had ruined. And Father, this day, we pray that you would enable us to see more of your glory we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, we celebrate the birth of our Lord, and our Savior, our God, and our King, Jesus Christ. We celebrate the promise being fulfilled. 2,000 years or rather, going back even further, approximately 4,000 years before the birth of Christ, 4,000 years before the birth of Christ, God made a promise to humanity through Adam and Eve. That although they were the ones who had violated God's law, although humanity, human beings, were the ones who brought sin and suffering and misery into the world, and brought humanity into a miserable existence which we deserve, which we have brought on ourselves, 
It was God who made a promise to Adam and Eve that someday he would send a redeemer. Someday he would send someone to repair the broken relationship between humanity and God. 4,000 years after that promise, that promise is fulfilled in the birth of Christ. 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, God proclaims that same promise to Abraham, reminding humanity that he has not forgotten. Although 2,000 years had passed, think about that. We talk about the birth of Christ being 2,000 years ago. When you study world history from the time of Christ until now, there is a lot that has transpired. And from the time of Adam and Eve to the time of Abraham, there was 2,000 years of silence. The world simply went on. Yes, God revealed himself to certain individuals, but nothing like he does to Abraham. And then God proclaims the gospel to Abraham and tells him that through Abraham, all of the families on the earth shall be blessed. We're the evidence of that, that that promise has been fulfilled. 1,500 years before the birth of Christ, God preserves that promise through Israel by entering into a covenant relationship with them, ensuring that that promise will be fulfilled and that when it is fulfilled, we will be able to look back through the corridors of time and know that the promise became a reality. And then a 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, God affirms that promise through King David. And even more specifically than simply telling Abraham that there's going to be a descendant of yours that somehow through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, even more specifically, God says to King David, the son who will come will be your son. He will be within the line of King David. And yet, while all of this is going on, throughout the entire Old Testament, thousands and thousands of years, while all of this is going on, all of the surrounding nations are living in utter darkness. Acts 14.16 says, quote, In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Before the coming of Christ, probably 99% of the world was living in darkness. 99% of the world was living in sin and in misery, in disparity, with no hope in the world. But with the coming of Christ, with the birth of Christ, light has dawned. Light came into the world. And this is what we celebrate this morning. We celebrate the dawning of light, the coming of hope. Love made manifest 
in physical human form. This is what Paul is talking about here in our text. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In this text, Paul is picking up on the theme of inheritance and heir that he talks about in the previous chapter. He mentions it twice, once in chapter 3, verse 18. There he says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. In this chapter, he's making the argument to the Galatian Christians that the promise made to Abraham that the inheritance that the people of God are to receive are not earned through works. They're not earned through law-keeping because this promise was not given to Abraham based on works, based on law-keeping, but simply based on promise. He says that again in verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The heirs of the Abrahamic promises according to the Old Testament were the people of Israel, or so they thought. But Paul wants his readers to understand that so long as an heir is a child, there's no real difference. There's no practical difference between the heir and a household slave. In ancient times, children were valued simply by what they were able to contribute to the family, to the ranch, to the farm. The more children a family had, it was a good thing because that meant there was more people that could milk the cows. They could plow the field. They worked. So quite oftentimes, the point that Paul is making He's simply stating an observation that so long as the heir is a child, there's really no difference between the child and a household slave. But now he gets to the heart of the matter in verse 3. And he says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The we that he is referring to is to Jews and Gentiles before Christ. He's talking about people in their unbelieving state, which would include Jews who are seeking to earn their righteousness by means of law-keeping. So this, we get this from verse 1, that there is no difference, Paul says, between an heir and a slave, And so the we has to do with Jews and Gentiles. Paul views the Jews as being the heir. He views the Gentiles as being slaves of sin, slaves of darkness, not having known the one true God. But in the end, apart from Christ, Paul says there's really no difference between the two. They're both really treated the same. 
Hence, before Christ came, we Jews and Gentiles, Paul says, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Everybody was. What does he mean by elementary principles of the world? It is a Greek word. It's one Greek word, actually, and it's the Greek word stoicheion. Paul helps us to understand what he means by it because he uses it again in verse 9, which is a little more clear. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? That's the same Greek word, elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once again. So whatever Paul means by the elementary principles of the world, he seems to mean those forces in the world which enslave us and keep us from knowing God. Paul uses this phrase in other parts of the New Testament, but in the end, what Paul seems to be saying is it's not just sin. The elementary principles of the world is not just sin, but it's the influences of the world. It's the culture of the world. It's the way the world thinks. It's the way the world behaves and acts. It's the things that the world values. All of that enslaves us and keeps us from knowing God. Thus, in the same way, Paul says, before Christ came, we were slaves. All of us. Before the coming of Christ and before we came to know Christ, we were slaves to the forces of this world. Some of those forces, some of those influences of the world, Paul lists in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. There he talks about the evidence or the works of the flesh as sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. Is that not just a description of the world in which we live? That's just a perfect description of what we see on television what we read in magazines, what we see on the news. That is an excellent description of this world, and these are the things that once enslaved us, if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, these are the things that do enslave you and keep you from knowing God. Paul says we were slaves to these things, as Paul states in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was us. What a sad, sad state. We were, as the Bible tells us in many other places, unable to understand the truths of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the 
The unbelieving mind cannot understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. Prior to Christ coming into the world, we were blind to the things of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That is what it meant to be imprisoned by the elementary principles of this world. We were hateful toward the things of God. Romans 8, 7 tells us that the mind that is set on the flesh, that is the unbelieving mind, is at enmity against the things of God. And then the very next verse says, it cannot, indeed it will not submit to the law of God. The unbelieving mind left to its own devices, its own will, the unbelieving heart will not bow the knee to the lordship of Christ. We were living in darkness, lifeless and dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. The unbelieving world is not just sick in sin, the unbelieving world is dead in sin lifeless, floating down the river toward the waterfall into eternal damnation, unable to help ourselves. This was us, if you're a believer. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, this is you. This is how the Bible describes the condition and the spiritual position and situation of all those who have not bowed the knee to Christ and received him as their Lord and Savior. This is where the world was and is. But God. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now, there are seven words between the word but and the word God, but don't miss it. But God. But when the fullness of time had come, God. This is a phrase that Paul is very fond of. It's one of his favorites. In fact, Paul uses that phrase, but God, 11 times in the New Testament. What is interesting to know is that Paul is the only New Testament writer that uses that phrase, but God. You don't find it with any other New Testament writer. He uses it powerfully. I'll give you a couple of examples. Romans chapter 5 Verses 6 to 8, Scripture says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still in our sin, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Very few people in this world are willing to give their life for someone else. 
If they are, they might be willing to die for a good person, possibly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would be willing to die. Listen to this, but God. But God shows his love for us, listen, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still shaking our fist at God and saying, stay out of my life. Let me live the way I want to live. Let me live by my own rules. Let me make up my own laws. I don't want to live by your word. I want to live my way. While we are still seething at God, living in blatant disobedience to the will of God, Christ died for us. Christ did not die for people who might be good. He didn't die for people who are somewhat good. He died for those who were shaking their fist at God. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul goes on to say in verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Christ didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies who then become his friends because of what he has done for us. Here's another great example. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Scripture says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Don't think God saved you because you were so wonderful and deserving of being saved. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Those who are saved understand that God did that. God reached down into the depths of my sin and saved me. Back in our text, Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, after all that God had done throughout all of the Old Testament, at the right moment, in the right way, using the right people, God brings the promise of Genesis 3.15 to fruition, when the fullness of time had come. Thousands of years had gone by. Few in the world, very few in the world, even knew about the promise, had ever even heard about that promise. Thousands of years went by, 
And yet God remains faithful to his word. God is always faithful to his word. God may not keep his promises in the way that we like. He may not keep them in on the time schedule that we like, but God always keeps his promises. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Here we have the deity of Christ juxtaposed against the humanity of Christ. Sent forth his son. Jesus is God's son. Not in the way that Adam was God's son. Adam was the first created by the creator, but Jesus is the only begotten of God. Begotten, not made, as the Nicene Creed tells us. So God sent forth his son directly from him. Christ is the only begotten of God. Listen, born of woman, born under the law. Paul is now emphasizing the humanity of Christ up against his deity. Jesus, who comes directly from God, is born of woman and born under the law. Jesus was not only fully human in terms of his birth, but he was also fully human in that he lived under the burden of the law. Jesus had to be fully human, not just anatomically, not just physiologically. Jesus, in order for us to be saved, had to be human experientially. He had to experience what we experience living in this world. The author of Hebrews makes that point incredibly clear. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, meaning human beings, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, listen, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that, here's the reason, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to be like us in every way minus sin. The author of Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Listen, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
The idea that Jesus was tempted as we are implies the burden of the law. Because as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, without the law, we would not know what sin is. But the law comes in and stirs up sin and temptation. Temptation is exactly that, to go beyond the law, to do that which God forbids. Jesus experienced temptation. He experienced the burden of living under the law, yet without sin. He never gave in. He never violated the law. Jesus is fully divine, fully God, and Jesus is fully human in every way minus sin. He knows what it's like to be us. He knows the weightiness of the law. He's walked in our shoes. He knows our struggles. He's been there. This is the point that Paul is making in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, divine, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. To redeem those who are under the law. Jesus had to be fully divine and fully human in order to accomplish that. This is because no animal sacrifice will ever do because animals aren't to blame for sin. Animals didn't bring sin into the world. People did. Humans did that. Therefore, a human must pay the price. But Jesus could not be merely human. Because if he were merely human, if he were only human, then he himself would be sinful because we're told in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're told in Romans chapter 5 that all of those who are physical direct descendants of Adam inherit his sin. If Jesus were fully human, he would have his own sin to pay for and he couldn't pay for mine or yours because he has his own to pay for. But Jesus could not simply be fully divine either. Because if Jesus were fully God and only God and not fully human, well, again, God wasn't the one who brought sin into the world. Humans did. God didn't do that. Jesus had to be fully human and fully God, in order to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Because he is human, he stands as our representative. Because he is sinless, he can pay for our sins and does not have to pay for his own. And because he is divine, he is infinite, and therefore his death is able to pay off an infinite debt that is owed by human beings to an infinite God. Thus God takes on human flesh and is born in Bethlehem to redeem those under the law. To redeem us from the burden and the condemnation of the law 
and to adopt us into God's family. Whereas once we were alienated from God through faith in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we become children of God. We are adopted into God's family. As John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says, and I'm going to read from the NIV because I just think the NIV nails the translation here. 1 John 1, verses 12 and 13, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, not of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. When we become a child of God, God does that. God adopts us into his family. Just as with any adoption, the parents decide who to adopt, which child they are going to adopt, or whether they are going to adopt at all, the children don't make that decision. God does that. So then Paul concludes in verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Ultimately, this is what we celebrate during Advent. That God stepped into our world, that God broke into time, space, and history and took on human flesh. The creator of the universe, the very same God who spoke everything into existence by the power of his word becomes an infant so that he could grow and live in perfect obedience to the law of God on our behalf. And then as that perfect and sinless individual die on the cross to pay for our sins so that we might be adopted and brought into the family of God. And all of that, that most glorious of all gifts that have ever been given, is simply received by faith. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to clean up your life and become a better person before you can receive the gift because otherwise then it's not a gift. And that's in fact what Paul talks about in Romans chapter four. If we have to earn it, then it's not a gift. It is a gift that is received by faith by simply believing that Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins, and I believe that. That is the greatest gift of all. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the glorious gift of your Son that is freely offered to all of humanity and is received by those who will simply believe.
Father, I pray that if there are any here this morning who have not received that gift with simple childlike faith, I pray, Lord God, that you would open their eyes to the glory and the beauty and the wonder and the love and the joy of Christ and of knowing Christ, that they might be adopted into your family as a child of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we take